I'm Katie, mom to two littles and four angel babies. With a PhD and over a decade spent unraveling how our society shapes mom's experiences, I am here to shred the rule books and their relentless tide of expectations. In this safe space, the complexities of motherhood find a candid, unfiltered voice. We're Undefining Motherhood, one conversation at a time. One thing I hear referenced over and over again in the infertility community is how much moms feel like they've been lied to. It's like we spend our whole lives being told we'll get pregnant if we even look at someone of the opposite sex the wrong way, only to try for a baby and find it nearly impossible to have one. In this episode, I dig into my own upbringing and how it left me feeling paralyzed and ashamed when I wasn't able to get pregnant. We'll explore the tangled web of expectations, the silent struggles of infertility, and the unanticipated shifts that come with recurrent miscarriage. My fertility journey was so formative that it shifted my entire career plan. And what's funny is that my work and research had been leading me to that shift for nearly a decade, yet I had no idea. So let's jump in, because this is a story you really want to hear. I always thought that my journey to motherhood would be easy because that was my mom's experience. And it was so hard when that wasn't the case that it literally changed the trajectory of my life. So I remember this time when we were sitting at the kitchen table. I was probably an adolescent. Um, so my brother would have been a teenager. He's older than me, you know. So he he was probably like, I don't know, 15-ish years old. And he was counting on his fingers, kind of like out loud but under his breath. And he was like, July, August, September, October, November. And we were like, what is he doing? Like, this is strange, right? And so... A couple of things that I think are worth knowing about this story for anyone who doesn't know me. Um, I come from a small town in northwest Georgia, and this is the mid-1990s, right? So we're in a pretty big place in the Bible Belt. Um, We're in a place where lots of people are conceiving pregnancies and having babies before they're married, but no one is talking about that, and they're all trying to hide it. And what we, my mom finally realized he was doing was he was trying to determine if he was conceived in or out of wedlock. <laughs> I love a teenage brother. I know, right? So he's counting on his fingers, and we still don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, he looks at my mom, not my dad, mm. noticeably, my mom, and he says— you made it by the skin of your teeth. God. <laughs> and I, to this day, I really don't understand what he was trying to accomplish with this. Because despite growing up in the Bible Belt, I was not raised in a particularly religious family. So my parents were not like, there. this wasn't something he could have hung over their shoulders or said this went against their teachings. Like, I, I think this was just for Mark. A moment of sheer curiosity. He was, you know, a little bit of a smart ass. And so he was playing that card some. But for me, I think it was one of the most pivotal moments of my life. That's really interesting. Why do you think that story sticks out to you so much? 
I feel like this is the moment that I believe defined my expectations toward my journey to motherhood. Um, So what he discovered was that my parents had gotten married. He had been conceived or he had been born. Nine and a half months later. Nine and a half months later. Nine and a half months. The exact perfect timing. My parents' journey to having children was a literal honeymoon. Right? And of course... I was also growing up in the South, and, like, you grew up in the South as well, so you know that, like, sex education classes and things like that, you're— Purity culture. Yeah, purity culture. You're basically taught, like, if you have sex, you will immediately get pregnant and also get gonorrhea and chlamydia. (laughs) I was about to say, STDs are included. Yes, they are included. Um, And so, honestly, I think mine was probably better than some. Like, she at least showed how to put a condom on a banana and, like, there— Yeah, it wasn't 100% like abstinence only but that was the culture in general even though it was not necessarily the culture in my household um and so you know i went through the rest of my adult life with the assumption that if you do not want to get pregnant and you are going to be sexually active you need to be on birth control Mm -hmm. i also understood that was not foolproof until the day that you are ready And my belief was so ingrained in this idea that what happened to my mom would happen to me that I thought I could plan having a baby to the exact month. Like, this is the month that we're going to conceive. I told John about it. (laughs) We're going to get pregnant this month. He was like, great. Okay, yeah. <laughs> sure. Is that, is that, is that how, how this that works? works? I, I, I think so. Yeah, it's kind of my answer. Like, yeah, I think that's how this works. Um, and so I, I think I spent two days in bed crying on that first month of getting my period. And, like, it was the first month. Gee. Oh, my goodness. Um, Did you start trying to conceive after that actively? Yes. Like you had to kind of start your journey from that point. I had to start my journey from that point, realizing it might not be immediate. I still had no idea of what was to come. So how long did you go before you told anyone? The first person outside of John who knew we were trying to conceive was my best friend from college, Tessa. And it was because I called to say, I'm pregnant. I need to tell you to tell me everything I can't eat. Wow. Um, so a year and a half. It took a year and a half to conceive. Yeah, because we were close friends at that point, uh-huh. too, and I didn't know. You had no idea. No. You had no idea. Um, I didn't tell anyone. And that's, like, not me. Mm-mm. No. Right? <laughs> no, you're very loud and very vocal about the things that you're going through. Exactly. And that's not a bad thing at all. No, it's just, it's true. Like, loud and vocal are the descriptors for me. Literally, yep. A decade of teaching college and the comments I got on my teaching evaluations more than (laughs) anything else were, she's really loud, Mm -hmm. which I think actually meant volume, like don't sit in the front row in her class. (laughs) Um, And she is extremely enthusiastic about like when she believes in something, she is just gung ho. And like, that's what I was known for. And this was so ingrained in me that having a baby was going to be easy, that I was so ashamed Mm. that I just didn't tell anybody at all. 
no one knew. And that is just at such odds with how I normally work. So then I finally conceived, of course, Tessa knew. And the only other person I told was my friend Sarah, not you, Sarah. Right. And I told her because, one, that girl can keep a secret better than anybody I know on the planet. And two, we were at dinner for a friend's birthday. And we were going to have margaritas, which are my favorite drink, were then, still are today. And it was going to be really obvious if I wasn't drinking. And I was not prepared for this at all um, because I was newly pregnant. And at this point, I still, like, assumed everything would be fine, but also just thought you're supposed to not tell anybody. So that's still kind of where I was. And so I had Sarah sort of run defense with me so that the servers could bring me virgin margaritas all night. And no one would ever know that I wasn't drinking. Um, when I had my first miscarriage, that was... The first time that the people closest to me, with those very few exceptions, even knew I was trying to have a baby, which was really extra tricky because it meant that, like, my mom had been lamenting for years that I didn't seem interested in kids. Mm -hmm. And so she's, like, learning that I'm actually trying to do this thing she wants me to do at the same time that I'm calling her in tears over a miscarriage. So it should have been really weird for her too. It was really weird for her. Well, and my dad was having a hip replacement that day. So like my dad is in literal surgery and I call my mom like huffing and puffing, hyperventilating, saying they want to do surgery and take my baby and I don't want them to, but it's dead. And she was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, which one of these things do I take care of? What's happening right now? So, yeah, it was it was definitely a lot. Were you teaching too at that time? So that's what made it the hardest for me. I was teaching, and it was my first year at tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that one-month thing was like, well, the one-month thing had been before I ever finished my PhD. I wanted to have a baby in the summer because grad students don't get maternity leave. Um But at this point, I didn't care. Like, please just give me a baby. We'll figure it out. But one of the things that stands out to me as being so stunningly hard after that loss was going back to work. And it was because I had been so silent on this issue for so long. And now I was going through something catastrophic. I was devastated. Thank goodness my boss gave me a whole week. And even then, I was not ready. And I was teaching business communication at the time. And so having taught both, like, English classes and business classes, like, they're a very different vibe, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I was kind of an open book with my English students. But this year, I was only teaching business communication, and it was through the business school, not through their version of the English department. So I had put up these really high walls between myself and my students. I had certain shoes I wore that gave a certain idea about me. I wore certain clothes that gave a certain idea about me. And like these students did not know anything yeah, about. Because you have to kind of model the professionalism exactly. of, of the business environment. Exactly. Right? You have to model the professionalism. Um, and so that's what I was trying to do. And But what that meant was that I was walking through this really hard time that ended up being three losses in two semesters, and my students didn't know anything. They knew that we kept having classes that were moved to online, 
But they just thought, like, I don't know. I don't know what stu- – all students think when that happens is, like, score. I don't have to go to class right, today, yeah. right? So, like, they were still coming to me as if things were normal, complaining that their 95 should have been a 97. And I and you're just, over here, like, masking being a business uh, communication. Like, just yeah. trying to hold it together in some way at all. And so – it was the hardest year of teaching of my life, and not because of the students and not because of the class. I just – I ended up requesting to move out of the business classroom and back into the English classroom. And the reason I requested that was because I needed to get my voice back mm-hmm. because words are how I heal, and I didn't feel like I could heal having to – wear this mask and continue being silent. And I have not been silent since. This episode is sponsored exclusively by Genate by Snip Therapeutics, providing genetics-powered nutrition tailored for every stage of the fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum journeys. Imagine a world where mothers have more control over their health and their baby's development. Where maternal health isn't just a hashtag, it's something that really matters. This is the dream Genate is turning into a reality. Through personalized nutrition insights, Genate helped me learn exactly how my body processes and struggles to process different essential vitamins and nutrients. Their focus is on the nutrients that are most essential for babies' cognitive development, making them a dream for moms who are trying to conceive, pregnant, or nursing. And they didn't stop there. They gave me personalized recommendations for how to adjust my daily intakes and their new prenatal vitamin adjust to the needs they see most often in moms. Their approach isn't just about supplements or tests. It's about understanding and nurturing our unique bodies during some of life's most crucial phases. Gene gives me hope for a future where every mother can feel empowered and supported in her health care. Check them out at undefiningmotherhood.com forward slash Genate and use code undefiningmotherhood10 for 10% off. It's interesting how blindsided I was by my struggles with fertility and recurrent pregnancy loss when I had spent literally a decade studying these things, right? So I, when I was 23, long before I was interested in having kids, like I don't even think we started trying until I was about 30, I developed this really intense interest in motherhood and Victorian literature. And do you know why? You of all people might actually (laughs) know why. (laughs) Because there are no mothers in Victorian literature. Because there are no It's like a Disney movie. Yes. Yes, they're Uh, absent. Most of those Disney movie stories from when we were kids, they came from Victorian fairy tales. There were no mothers. So actually, for all of our listeners, I would love to introduce you. That voice you heard, that was Sarah. Sarah is the editor of Undefining Motherhood and has been since the day our website was founded. And we wrote our doctoral dissertations together, studying different things just one century apart. So as we go through this podcast, we are going to be bringing you all of these crazy little tidbits of history nuggets thrown in to the interesting present day conversations that we're having. It's going to rock your socks. I promise you're going to love it. Um, And so she is here as a co-host 
to this podcast because it's really important that she has a voice to help hold me to the high undefining motherhood standard um, and also because she just has a lot to share. So thank you for being here with us, Sarah. Thanks for that introduction. All right. uh, Let's get back to your Victorian literature. Okay. So back to Victorian literature. And if this feels boring to you, just stick with me because I promise it's going to be it's going to be worth it. Okay. So there were no mothers in Victorian literature. And like, I don't know what you all remember from your high school and college English classes. And as much as it hurts my heart to say, I'm willing to venture it's not much because you probably only read the spark notes and not the book or the cliffs notes and not the book. And yes, I am dating myself with that, but that was just the reality. But if you so happened to actually pick up any of the real books when you were that age and you read things by Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte or Charles Dickens, then you might recall, like in the fairy tales from the Disney of our childhood, that there are no mothers. And if there are mothers, they are like the most outrageously ridiculous human beings who are clearly meant to be comedic caricatures. And so there's no one who's just like a normal mom. And this is what fascinated me. I was like, I've got to figure this out. Something's going on here. And like, it was already known. um, Victorian literature was kind of called in itself the literature of motherlessness. Like people knew this, but there hadn't been, in my opinion, nearly enough research on like, why the heck are there no mothers here? And I became convinced as a 23-year-old, right, who didn't even know how to try to do academic research yet, was just starting to learn. I became convinced that it had some Something to do with what was happening with mothers in the real world during this time period. So I started digging, and for 10 years, I kept digging. So here is the point, right? I'm ready. Really quick Spark Notes version. Okay, we also want to say that if you did read Spark Notes in college, no shade. We can't add. No shade. We just really like books. But yeah, not math people. No. So no. yeah, we. I'm sure we literally are, we, can. Yeah, yeah, that too. Uh, okay, so 19th century okay. equals industrial revolution. Yes. Industrial revolution equals lots of printing happening, mm-hmm. mass rise in literacy, mass rise in print communication. So for the first time ever in the history of the world, there is an abundance of material being produced and printed. The mass, eh, mass-ish of people, the middle, upper middle class and higher could read. And the amount of material that was being produced about how to be a good mom was staggering. And there were some things that really, 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 really stood out to me. These things were mostly that One, there was so much advice and it was all about how to do it exactly right, how to be a good mom and like you have to do it my way or the highway. They didn't, there was no room for nuance. It was like you do it exactly this way. Two, the advice was impossible to live up to. The standards were insane. It all made the mother the martyr. She had no control over, like nothing about her life got to be about her anymore once she had a baby. Three, it was all written by men. With like a slight few exceptions, 
Um, and most of those things were written by ministers' wives. And it was written still under, like, Mrs. and then the husband's name. Fascinating. Gotta love it. And I kept thinking to myself, how could these moms possibly feel like they're doing a decent job? How could they feel like they're getting this right? How can they feel like they're doing this okay? And my contention was that that was the reason that they were absent from Victorian mm. literature, particularly literature written by women. Because these women knew that once you became a mom, you didn't have a voice anymore. Wow. You didn't have anything to say. So why should you even be in the book? And this was something that was just I mean, I was crazy about it. Like, they even had this crazy thing. They had a genre of book that was exceedingly popular called conduct manuals. This is how you behave in every, it was like the precursor to Emily Post, but like way more prescriptive. So these poor women couldn't win. No matter who they listened to, the standards are impossible. Sounds like today. And then I started trying to conceive and going through a current miscarriage. And I was like, holy F, how far have we come? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Undefining Motherhood podcast. It's been an honor to share this time with you. Remember, you're not just a listener. You're an essential part of our community. If today's conversation resonated with you, I have three simple requests for how you can help us grow. First, subscribe wherever you listened so you don't miss an episode. Second, we'd love it if you could leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast as that's one of the most important ways we can grow and share our message and community. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. Jump over to Instagram and find us at Undefining Motherhood, where you'll see a post about this week's episode where we can continue the conversation. Thank you for being a part of the Undefining Motherhood community, where together we're making change. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.